I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing Walter Wangren Jr.'s The Book of the Duncow. And we are here to discuss, I guess it's part three, right? Yeah, part three. Uh, it's the it's a little. I got penultimate confused. section. Yeah, the penultimate section because part four is like short compared yeah. to these first three parts. Yeah. We're going to discuss these, this third part and I guess the first three parts together. Um, so we're not going to spoil how it ends, but we are going to spoil the battle stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll just put it that way. So if you haven't listened, I mean, if you haven't read the battle stuff, <laughs> then make sure you do that if you don't want to get it spoiled. Before we dive into that, just want to let you know that uh, season two of Withywindle, our podcast for kids, is, is coming. The teaser trailer has been released so you can go check that out with your kids. And we have some incredible guests coming on season two. Should I should I say some names, do you think? Yeah. Should I drop yeah. that so that people can tell their kids? Drop names, David. Some of the guests coming up on season two of Withy Windle, which is our podcast for kids, of course, include Trenton Lee Stewart, who is the author of The Mysterious Benedict Society, which just had a uh, season one of its Disney Plus show launch. That's that's going to be a really fun one. We've got, uh, towards the end of the season, we're going to have Ben Hatkey on. He is the illustrator of a bunch of stuff, including the Z to the Space Girl and Mighty Jack uh, graphic novels. We also have Jonathan Oxier coming on, Peter Nimble books, The Night Gardener. He's great. Uh, we got Christine Cohen. She's I the author of The Winter King. Books. Oh, we got Kate Albus on. She is the author of a great new book, um, which, oh shoot, the name of it slips my mind right now, but it's a wonderful middle grade novel about us kids during World War II. It's really great. So we've got a whole bunch of great people coming on. It's going to be a really good time. So if you haven't tuned in yet to Willy Wendell, what are you waiting for? Graham and I have a great time. For? We talked to some great people. It's super goofy, super, super silly. Uh, you but guys it's, are we have, hilarious we have a lot of fun. too. Like, I, it's objectively <laughs> Thanks, Heidi. funny. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, we also have The Place the Thing on the Cersei Podcast Network. Tim, that's you're like the head honcho of that show. That's right. Um, but I do want to say before I move away from Withy Windle, I got an email today from somebody, from a nine-year-old saying, when is Miss Heidi going to be on Withy Windle? She's on my mom's podcast, Close Reads. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? So, when am I going to be on so, Withy so Windle? So now, it, now it's been a challenge. The gauntlet has been thrown. And this either is going to be a Brandon situation Better where we just string people out. Get to work mm-hmm. on my best-selling mm-hmm. YA novel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but but yeah, the place, the thing. Um Hamlet is done. Hamlet is done. I believe. And We've not released the Q&A episode, but we've recorded all five acts. Uh, Heidi, myself, and your dad, Andrew Kern. And then coming up next is The Taming of the Shrew. Taming of the Shrew, I think, should be either a couple episodes should have been released by now. If not, very, very soon. Yeah, We're th- doing our th- last. Does that sound right, David? I think the first episode is either up. I think it's up now. Yeah, I think it's up. So... We have a new um, addition to that show, Nora Ankrum, who is a director nice. of plays, also the executive director of a theater in uh, West Virginia. And she's joined by, of course, me and Matt Bianco, who works for the Circe Institute. And what's part of the reason that I invited each of them to be on the show is that Matt really loves The Taming of the Shrew. Nora is pretty skeptical of the Taming of the Shrew. The background is Taming of the Shrew is... So you're pitting them against each other. Well, we we tried not to because I don't want to like force them to be antagonists because they're both... It's a very controversial play. I'm teaching it right now in my 
medievals class. And it it's is tough, Heidi. Man, it is. Right? There are some strong responses to that play. I cannot wait I to listen bet. to this series. It will shed a lot of light on it for a lot of people. I think what's worked really well with the podcast is that um, Nora and Matt are on opposite sides of the debate. And the debate is kind of like, is it a misogynistic play? You know, is... And I think the case, well, I will reserve judgment. I will refer to listen to the you show. to the show. Yeah. I'll refer you to the show. And I think it's the kind of- a bold move to do Taming of the Shroom. Excited. Yeah. Excited yeah. about listening to well, it. Well, although it is called The Place of Thing and it's all about Shakespeare and eventually you got to get to it. So You got to get to it eventually. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, there's lots of great stuff happening. Um, one more thing I wanted to tell everyone about. I haven't made it. This is the first official announcement about this. Um, I am moving to Croatia. That is a surprise, David. Yeah, I did they not know that. They have such good wine in Croatia. That's a <laughs> great do. idea. No. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not moving. There. Just before before people are like, this is what? how rumors get started. <laughs> I know. I try to start as many rumors about myself as possible. No, um, we actually have another podcast coming. It's called Bibliography, and this is a show on which I talk about interesting or talk with interesting people about the books that they love. So it's going to be authors you know, like novelists, it's going to be uh, musicians, athletes, whoever wants to come on that is, you know, willing to come on and talk to a guy who owns a mediocre bookstore and mediocre bookstore, midtown, a mid-sized North Carolina city. So we're going to be starting that in October. (laughs) We're going to be, we're going to save the world. We've got, we've got a couple of North Carolina authors that we're starting with, Ron Rash and Wiley Cash. These are like pretty great novelists, actually. And then after that, we've got a bunch of uh, different authors and artists of, of various disciplines uh, that we're going to be talking to. And that's going to be once a week, although the first, the first week we'll have two episodes. But it's really, I've recorded a bunch of episodes. It's really fun. Some of these people are, you know, their knowledge about, about books is just incredible. Sometimes we end up talking for a half hour about writing because they're novelists and like these are the books that inspired them to be writers. And that you just never know where conversations with people who love books are going to take you. So be on the lookout for that. You can subscribe to that um, in the next week to 10 days. So I just wanted to let everyone know about that. And we'll be posting links to that and to each episode and so forth. But okay, that's the business. Let's let's talk about the book of the Duncow. Now I, I think I need to maybe fall on my sword here. I can either take the blame um, because I'll just put it this way. If in the last episode, we may have been more negative than we meant to be coming across about the book. And we may have, that may have happened because this is a book that I think makes me feel dumb. <laughs> and so we end up talking about things that maybe people were not as interested in. So for example, we had, you know, Heidi's done, Heidi's taken me and Tim through some of the medieval symbolism and the things that that's alluding to. And that was partly because I didn't know what was going on. Yeah, <laughs> You know, it's a book that made me feel like I, w- I was a little confused at times. And so Heidi was helping, you know, I think I turned to Heidi's knowledge of the medievals to help clarify and focus some things for me. But then there's other people who aren't as interested in that. And I think maybe that led to it seeming like Tim and I didn't like the book or being more negative when in reality, we were just trying to get some clarity and and help understand it a little better. And so we were turning to that, but we also here on this podcast are big believers in like, you don't need 
expertise to love a book. Mm-hmm. How do you, I think you specifically did say that last week. Yeah, but I was the one going on and on about all the medieval symbolism. So I, right. well, the, you, you know, we kind of got into the, anybody we kind of got into book. that water. Yeah. Yeah. And people, we know people love the book. I don't think that either Tim or I meant to be as negative about it as we came across. I think that you can read this book in a lot of different ways. Like you can read it as a novel and you can look at it from in the, the ways that you would look at a traditional novel. And I think that if Tim and I do have any complaints, they're probably about the way that it breaks traditional novel rules. But you can also look at this as like a story that's in keeping with a much larger, grander tradition that, that is in keeping with the medievals and is in keeping with fairy tales and fables and all those sorts of things. And I don't think Tim and I have, like we don't have any complaints that I know of, but we haven't, you know, I, th- I think we feel good about this book as far as that goes. Tim, do you want to add anything here? I just wanted to sort of say, we didn't mean to be as negative as we may have came across based on some of the comments online. And that I think is where that's coming from. And that's why I perhaps steered us more into the expertise mode of reading than was necessary. Tim, did you want to say something? You look like you have something on the tip of your tongue. Well, I, I, I want to defend Heidi's taking us into kind of like the symbolism of the medieval world. I mean, one of the other things we try to do on the show is we try to give people um, a depth of insight so that they can enjoy, have a depth of enjoyment. And I, I took Heidi's kind of like elucidation of the um, medieval symbols and tropes within the book to be an attempt to do that. Um, also, me, she knows so much about it. It's fun to hear her get excited about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Like Heidi in a wine also shop. Also for me. <laughs> would you say yeah. like Heidi in a wine <laughs> shop? <laughs> um, yeah. or, or Tim on Dress Like Your Favorite Tamlet Character Day. Yeah. Right, right. Polonius. What? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, the thing, I think the this biggest struggle that I've had with reading this book is what you said in a different way, David. I oftentimes end a section and I feel like, what am I missing? I'm missing something. And so I fully grant that people who are enjoying this book and like the richly drawn conflict between good and evil, um, you probably see something that I just don't see. And maybe, okay, part of the, part, part of the issue also, I think, is that um, if people have been frustrated at you and me, David, is whether or not we have earned it or not, we have a certain mantle of authority. Being on a show that talks about novels all the time, we've kind of like put on this mantle of authority. Yeah, I don't know, if, I don't so, know whether I'd say authority, but we have a platform. Yeah, we have a platform, which, I mean, <laughs> I think that's saying the same thing that I'm saying. There's like a certain authority that you get, whether or not you have earned it or not. You know, if you have a podcast, you have a certain level of kind of like authority as a commentator. And I completely admit that I've looked back at some of my opinions about past books and I've been like, oh, that was embarrassing. That just wasn't right. That just wasn't very insightful. That was a shallow reading. And I completely acknowledge that this is the case for my reading of this book. It may just be really shallow. There's clearly something that I'm not getting here that other people are getting. And to be fair, we are all reading it for the first time, which I think does not happen much on this podcast. So we're kind of like in real time without knowing how it ends, trying to be like, wait, uh, okay, huh? Wait, I'm confused. You know, yeah. for people who love the book and have read it a lot of times, that probably is like annoying. <laughs> I bet. 
Well, I I thought the conversation in the last episode was really rich and I, I thought it was great. Uh, I, I just, I really like what you said earlier, David, you said that you can read this book in many different ways. And, and Walter Wengren Jr. He said that he said this, I, and he said all authors do this, which is fair. Um, But he said he resists categorizing this novel that he wrote. And I think there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of accuracy in that. This is a novel that in many ways defies uh, the attempt to yeah. put it in a niche, right? <clears throat> to put it like in a section. Um, you know, Tim said it won the National Book Award uh, as in science fiction. That's I'm, like, I'm still a little bit right. I'm like, huh, question mark. Yeah, right. right? Um, but yeah, why also, is it science fiction? Like, uh, it's a great question. I really don't know. Like, I, but, but if you ask me, well, what other genre would you put it in? I'm not sure. Right. And so I think that that then lends itself to rightfully examining the book and the craft of the book. And I I think that's kind of where the last conversation took us, but to your point that you, that you made, David, there's, there's more, right? Like if it defies characterization in a certain way, then let's look at it in a different way. And that that's where, um, you know, is it a fable? Um, Is it an allegory, which, no, but it has allegorical elements to it. You know, for me, geeking out over the medieval stuff that like some people don't care about that at all. And that's totally fine. Like, so, but because it kind of defies characterization, that's where my mind went in reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's really fun to look at it from multiple angles. So, you know, however, it, however the conversation goes today, because this is our well, first time finishing the novel. None of us have read it. Now we have. Yeah. <clears throat> Although we didn't read the fat, the last, like, we're not going to discuss like part four, the, the, those last like. I just learned that. Tim told me that right before we hit record. I didn't know. So now oh, I like, we're not doing the final words. That's like six whole pages. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, um, yeah, I think that, again, I'll take the blame for that negativity because for me, I, it was not so much like I'm, when, if, I was, if I was coming across as negative, it was less, I think this is not good and more I'm, I need some help personally with this particular part of it. And that's where I think we don't plan what we're going to talk about on this show. Like we, we don't have like an outline. We don't have, I mean, except when we're trying to, you know, do a bit on the Patreon show about how Brandon shows up late. We don't do like, we don't plan like, you know, scenes and, and plot it all out. Um, it's usually we start with one or two questions. Can we just follow the conversation? It's fun. Yeah. So here in part three, then it's the battle stuff. Mm-hmm. We're going to get carnage and a valorous weasel and valorous. the battle between uh, um, Chanticleer and Cockatrice, the battle between the roosters. And um, by the way, there was a comment. How do you say his rooster wife's, his hen wife's name? I say Pertolote. Pertolote. What do you say, Tim? On the audio, it's Pertolote. Huh. I know. And That's when I first book. read it before I heard the audiobook, I was trying to rhyme it with paraclete. Like which hmm. failed. Which failed. Perto Pertel So what do you say, Heidi? I said per- Pertolote, but I if they're saying Pertolote, then I mean that's man, less fancy. Why not be less fancy? <laughs> so I'm I kind of uh, like Pedalote. Pedalote. It sounds kind of my darling. Pedalote. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. Like I say Nausicaa for the character in the Odyssey because I let's think it sounds beautiful. So I just made it I up. I thought you were talking about the Nausicaa Creed. Nicene. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I thought you had like some special nuanced kind of like, you're just going to made it your own. Nausicaa. I'm just trying to make Nice-a- it a the woman's n- name sound as beautiful the cha- as possible. The Nechene Creed. The Nechene Creed. Let's go with Pertolote. All right. Pertolote? Could, could oh, combine them into one. Now everyone knows so how not experts we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. There's also, so there is also the scenes between Chanticleer and Pertolote. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then we get the stuff with the dog and worm appearing and... Um, a German sounding word when they're in the middle of the battle. Blitz, 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 schlange. Hey, by the way, can we talk about that? I, I didn't, this is an example. This is a perfect example. I didn't understand that. Was that there, the, did, did you know what word? that meant, Heidi? The what? Sorry. The German blitz, word in the middle of the battle. Blitz, schlange. No. Uh-uh. I didn't know that. Um. I just figured it meant like a attack from the sky. <laughs> <laughs> probably yeah probably does I did look um, up the Latin but I did not look that this up this is time for a talk from the sky yeah <laughs> okay so where do where do we want to start we want to go backwards do we want to start with go worm or do we want to I don't we know want to start with worm okay do we want to start with worm let's start with worm yeah coming and then do the battle yeah between... let's start with worm okay because we've got you know we do have these different heroic characters um, we have like this not to delve into the uh, expert, you know, but there are allusions to things here. And with the weasel, for example, it had this vibe of a Homeric Aristea or something like that. Was that the word? The where the we're like yes, and it Hector does. goes crazy mm-hmm. in battle. It has that vibe of Hector going crazy in battle, but then cockatrice pulling an Achilles, right? Um, and then the worm feels like a god or something like that. So it feels very epic. Mm-hmm. Um, in this, mm-hmm. in this section. Um, and then we get worm and, you know, people talk, you know, it talks on the back of the book. People have talked about it in the, in the, in the Facebook group about how this is a tale depicting the epic struggle between good and evil. And that becomes, you know, these sort of large symbols of good and evil become really clear in this. It literally comes out of the earth. Right. Like a, it's like a, Almost like it's oozing out of the earth. Does he say sum sum worm subterra? Right. I am worm under the earth. When we get to that part of the book, we have reached a point where Cockatrice has died and Chanticleer is in this state of despair. Mm-hmm. It talks about how he has lost hope. Mm. The beginning of the novel, we have this fraught character who's proud then he 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 emerges as this heroic figure in you know classic you know knightly fashion he takes the mantle and he goes out and faces the evil knight and he defeats him and then here at the end he realizes that that he feels like that was in vain because there is this deeper evil at the core of the earth that he can't overcome and so in the end, he, he has lost his hope. <clears throat> and so I, I want to talk a little bit about the complexity of this character. Mm-hmm. Heidi, when you think about his courage and his bravery, 
and I'm going to need you to talk for a minute because I just realized my computer's going to die. <laughs> um, so I'm going to need to go. You have one job. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm going to have to go brave the stairwell and find a charger. Um, when you get to the complexity of this character, what is most compelling for you? Mm-hmm. The moments of pride, the moments of despair, or the moments of courage? And I don't mean to say that like, one of the, right. like the, whole, the point is that all of that makes a complex character. But for you, as you're reading, what most stands out to you as most compelling? Like, when are you most enraptured with the book and with this character's arc? Carry it away for a second. Tim, if you need to jump in, do so. I will be back momentarily. BRB. <laughs> so yeah. Um, no, David, I'm really glad that you're asking this question because I think that the psychology of the characters has replaced the medieval mindset as my favorite part of the novel at this point. I really love I my favorite part of the book by a mile. And I, I really, I really love this book for a myriad of reasons is the conversation that he has with Pertolote in the field of the dead in the middle of the mm. night before the big battle. When everyone's all the injured are groaning and his, even it in their is sleep. The, right. And the, the height of, I think, as David just said, what I love about Chanticleer is um, he's a rooster, but what I'm about to say is not wrong. And that is that he's so human. Um, he's, he's this great hero. This, he has this great soul. Um, but, and, and then he fails like so profoundly at the finish line. And that is, I don't know, to me, that's like my biggest fear he in fails life. At, he fails at the finish line. Like he, he, ha- he despairs. He gives in to not only to, dis- to pride and despair. Mm. Mm. And he's, which I think is a really brave thing to do as an author, to end the book in your hero's pride and despair like that's that is a that's a pro move walter reinger and jr like that's that's un, i i've it's it's how much how can i say this it's like the most unsatisfying and yet the most profound ending to a novel i've read in a really long time okay how how is it different than thing, the conclusion of all the pretty horses John Grady Cole, dissatisfied with his plight, with the injustice of the world. Because John Grady Cole did the thing. Chanticleer failed. Oh. Like, and that but is... Did, so that's an interesting question, though. I'm back, by the way. <laughs> Hi. Um, it is an interesting question, and you do need the final six pages to before we can delve too much into it. Because um, that adds a lot of depth to the question, but so far in the novel, yeah, like he, but it's complicated as David's pointing out, right? Because he, uh, he does give in to despair. There's no doubt about that and pride. Um, and so they win two battles and then they have this like heroic, he has this heroic rise, right? And while he's doing that, I'm thinking about like the loneliness of leadership 
Like as mm. he's encountering this, he, and then he has this profoundly lovely conversation with Portolote on the field of the day. Reminds me of Henry V before Agincourt. Exactly. Very, very much so. Um, that idea of the king who is completely alone, even though surrounded by an army of loyal followers who have committed heroic action of their own. And yet he is the king and, 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 and he's also a man. And like the war between the king and the man is very Shakespearean um, and very deep. And then I am expecting him to ride out and find some way to defeat worm. And then it ends up being Mundo Kani and that, Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's how, and then it just ends like with no resolution, with no repentance, with no reunion, with no opportunity to ask forgiveness. And then, at, and, and it's so unsatisfying, but at the same time, like, that's me, right? Like I am Chanticleer. That's what I would do. Right. Like it just, it brings this duality between the capacity of a hero and what it means to fail all in the same moment complex and i thought really just so powerful i loved it i was the perfect ending and yet i was completely unsatisfied how do you do that as an author i think that's maybe heidi maybe what we should do is just all just live just read these pages so we can talk about it because it's not that long sure um Whatever you guys want to do. I'm then we could just that. jump right into the Q&A next week since I know people have questions for us. <laughs> um, should we just I'd do it? totally down So then we that. can talk about it? Totally See, down initially that. I was thinking when, when we did it this way, I was just like, there's a natural break there. Um, didn't quite realize how many, like at first I didn't realize how many few pages there were. And then I thought, well, the, we, we could talk about up to the ending and then use talk about the ending and then the bigger picture. But it seems like to really talk about this character we really need to do the ending so um it so 20, is chapter, eight pages david 20 I, so i wonder if we could like yeah i guess it is press pause re, you and i could read it come back thanks to the magic much, of audio editing we come true. back instantaneously because we just stopped the recording we just put we in some jeopardy we, music oh we play some jeopardy music <laughs> I, heidi do we have time to do that sure yeah Totally Heidi do. was uh, Heidi was ambitious with her homework, and she made us look. She made us look 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 like the kids that sit in the back of the room. Although I actually sat in the back of the room, and I was a no. It was just B plus me student. making a mistake and finishing when I didn't have to. Okay, you know, so, you know how's the how is the accusation against Chanticleer from Worm is uh, you you suffer. You are the king who suffers more than he has to. <laughs> That's, that's me. you. You suffered more than Less you have to. Except, yeah. More flawed. <laughs> suffers more than I have to. Okay. So we're pressing pause and mute. Read it. Get back together in 15 minutes. Do you have time? 10. 10? Eight minutes. <laughs> Heidi, is that good? Sure. That sounds great. Okay. All right. You can go get coffee or something. And we're back. <laughs> Tim and I finished the book. I had a little problem though because my book and I ate a tostada. I had a little problem though because my book cut off mid sentence. So then Heidi had to send me a screenshot of the final paragraphs. Yeah, I didn't get the final. I didn't have the final page. Yeah, David was like, "How does this book end? Does it end with Chanticleer (laughs) leaving?" But no, it does indeed. It does not. It 
is kind of it's a it's a it's a it's a genre bending book, but not that <laughs> genre bending. <laughs> there is a period at the end of the book. Um, Can I tell you guys a story about a misprint in a book before we delve deeper into sure. the book of the Dun Cow? I bought a book um, about modernism and postmodernism, and it had original source readings. And one of the original source readings was from Jacques Derrida, which if you were associated with the Academy in the 1990s, everyone was talking about Jacques Derrida. And nobody's reading him because he's too hard to read. And I think he's also... He never doesn't use like periods and stuff. It's weird. His time has kind of run out also. I think, I don't know, maybe that's me talking. But anyway, in this book, this continental philosophy reader, Jacques Derrida's essay, halfway through, the text turns upside down. And I was like, bro, that is next level intertextuality or whatever it was called. And then I kind of like, I mean, for years, I believed that Jacques Derrida did it on commissioned it, did it on purpose. It on purpose. And <laughs> then one day I kind of backed down and I looked at the spine, you know how like, like different kind of groupings of um, pages yeah. are kind of together. And I'm like, oh, this is actually a printer's mistake. And it just <laughs> happened to fall with the Jacques Derrida essay. It just happened to fall. That's hilarious. Yeah, right. It would have been. The printer's like, you know, it would be awesome. <laughs> I'm going to make this flip. I'm gonna make this flip. <laughs> well, um, I did get. I did end up getting the final page. Heidi sent me a screenshot of her book. So now we're all caught up. And Heidi, I actually understand your comments a little bit better about the kind of despair of Chanticleer because I think at the end, before the final word, I took Chanticleer to be kind of like um, this hero who gave everything ended cockatrice's life, had no more to give, couldn't fight worm anymore, in comes the dog to save the day. But in the final part, um, we do kind of read about his despair, that he treated Muno Kondi so so poorly, and now he's dead, and he feels guilty about it. Yeah. Hey, I I have a question. We have... A handful of characters who do heroic things in this book. We've got uh, Mundo Connie, John Wesley, the roosters. Lote. What'd you say? Oh, yeah, Pertolote. And uh, of course, Chanticleer, who leans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then and just you just leaned in the soft. That was the end. Who, two questions here. In this book, what is heroism? Good question. Who is the most heroic character in this book? So those two questions. See, now I think we're like talking about the book. I think that's what the book is exploring is the question of what is a hero, right? What does it take to be a hero? Is it this like lone wolf brave? It's Mundo Kani who kills Worm. So we've got John Wesley. They all have like their own Oresteas. You know, John Wesley goes wild in the battle. He's like... He's like an Ajax or something like that. And you've got, uh, um, I'm trying to think if anybody would be Odysseus. I'm not trying to make draw too, but I'm just, you've got, each of them have their own. Right. It has that epic Iliad type scope. Yes. Um, There's even walls and so forth. And a walled city, like a chicken coop. Like it just occurred to me when I was reading it this time. I'm like, oh, it's like a walled medieval or ancient city. I get it. And there's the... uh, (laughs) And like cool. the, the bells, yeah. he's basically chiming the bells every time he crows and stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, so given that we've got, let's just say these 
Let's go with these four characters. Chanticleer, John Wesley, Mundo Connie, Pertilote, Pertilote. Which character do you think? Well, let's, let's, let's do the first question. What is heroism in this book? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm going to answer this first, even though I'm talking a lot. I'm sorry. And then I'm going to stop talking. I'm just going to Chanticleer lean. <laughs> Heidi said something and then she stopped talking for a while. Um, and that's so, why I think. I think, yes, <laughs> that. No, I'm really going to say something. Um, so the whole story completely takes a turn with Mindokani because I did think that Chanticleer was the hero. And I think he is the protagonist, but I think it's Mundokani who's the hero. And I think that Walter Rangeran Jr. is doing something a little bit daring and very experimental with this um, because, uh, and, and, and biblical, right? This, this, it's the suffering servant who ends up killing the monster, uh, it's not the feudal lord. It's not the liege lord. It's the vassal who's endearingly inept throughout the entire story and ends up being the one to, he ends up being the Odysseus, right? Driving the stake into the eye of the Cyclops. <laughs> so he's, he's the one who blinds and destroys the worm and then goes into the depths of the earth um, in a very Gandalf-like move, right? He's killing the Balrog. He's going into the bowels of the earth. He's, he's going into death. He's, he's the Christ figure of the story, not Chanticleer at all. So he takes this like very daring turn right at the end. Um, and and we, we ha- we're behind the eyes of the supposed hero the whole time, the hero we expect. We're behind the eyes of the epic hero, the pagan hero in a way, uh, uh, in, in terms of the motif of what a hero is. The leader, the king, uh, the, the, the able one um, with the Aristia, but it ends up being the servant, who who wins the battle and kills the monster. I've never read a book like that before. It was completely it I knew that Mundokani was going to do something heroic. Like that's kind of like and sacrifice himself. But I didn't know he was going to be the one to kill Worm. You know, usually like he's the sidekick. Like you'd expect him to be like the sidekick who sacrifices himself by saying like Worm over here over here and that's what I thought was going to happen the whole time and Worm was going to come at him and then Chanticleer was going to kill Worm. But it wasn't that at all. It was Chanticleer in pride and despair, giving up on the battle. And then Mundo Kani saving the day. That that's and I think he is making a commentary on heroism. I think he's saying it's not the one that you're gonna expect, which is a very biblical message, not an epic classical message. He's changing the rules. Did you guys expect that Chanticleer was gonna go into the crack in the earth's crust and do battle with worm and die and be raised again. Am I the only one that thought that? Yeah, no, it's supposed to be Chanticleer supposed to be the Christ figure, right? We know this is a Christian story. No, right. No. Well, the only thing about that is the Duncow talking to the the dog earlier is like, he's obviously being saved for something. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And the Duncow is this, sort of peripheral character who never really is explained. It's kind of 
Yeah, who was the dun cow? It, kind kind of um, mysterious. It's like a mystery. Yeah. You know, it's one of the things that I was thinking about is it talks about how they're fighting an evil that is mysterious. You know, I think that's the the phrase of the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was also thinking about how the opposite of that is also true. Like the good, the ultimate forms of good and evil are both mysterious in this book, mm. um, which makes them hard to grasp onto because then everything in between is sort of uh, flawed. You know, I mean, even Mundo Kani is like a holy fool, perhaps, but um, confused. It can kind of a confusing character to figure out what's going on with him. And then you've got Chanticleer, who is, you know, he's he's courageous but also full of pride. Um, you and you got all these other characters that are stuck between these two mysterious poles trying to in fact being pulled trying some of them are being pulled one direction or the other like such as the turkeys and the foxes and the otters and so forth but so tim's question about the dun cow who who is who is she yeah is she like supposed to be the opposite of worm is she supposed to be like a creator how do you um, read that? I mean, she's not she's not God because they talk about God. So I think she's a, a saint or an angel. Yeah, she, I thought I thought of her as an angel or the Virgin Mary. Like the, you know, the she's a female, mm-hmm. um, and the legend of the dun cow is uh, there's this cow that wanders that has an inexhaustible supply of milk, right? That's eternally comforting. That's available to nourish and sustain the wanderer, um, and appears when she's needed. So I think we have a, an animal version of a saint or of the Virgin Mary mm. or an angelic visitation right. who speaks the words of comfort and dwells in like the in-between space between heaven and earth. So is the, um, is the opposite is worm the opposite of the dun cow or the opposite of God? God. So then cockatrice is more of the dun cow in the. I think, uh, I think that cockatrice is the counterpoint. I mean, I think you can make a case for that, but I interpreted cockatrice as uh, the, the inversion of Chanticleer, right? Because they, he sees him as a mirror. He's a, he's a mirror to you. They use that word, I think three times mm-hmm. when he looks at cockatrice, he's a mirror. Um, and he thinks he's looking at himself. Like he's like, what he could be like this you know, on a, on a, on a psychological level, he's like the dark side. Like if you were to split Gollum in two and you have Gollum over here and Smeagol over here in separate characters, instead of in the same person, like, I think that's what's happening. And Chanticleer knows I could be like that if I were to give in to pride and despair, mm. which he does mm. at the end. Right. So it's a really complex psychological study of, Lots on that level. And then if you zoom out a little bit, um, he he dwells under the Terebinth Oak, which is a place of pagan sacrifice in the Bible. And so you have like the pagan king and the Christian king um, archetypes in Chanticleer and Cockatrice. And so you can look at it on, from that perspective, too. Okay. How do you think he gave in to pride? Did Chanticleer at the end? Like despair, I get, yes. but pride. Where did you see pride? Uh, in his response to Mundo Kani, um, in his despising of him throughout, I, yeah. I think he begins with pride and you think he's conquered it, but it comes back. I see. Uh-huh. 
And so that that's the battle for Chanticleer. He fights on the external and then he, you know, kind of fails at the end. Mm. And and but then he repents like a true repentance in the afterward, which I'm glad we've read for this episode, because I think that's important. And that's how he becomes a true hero is through repentance and through integrating himself back into his marriage and his community. Someone, I don't know who it was, said they thought that I was going to use the say that this book is a little on the nose. <laughs> and I that 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 passage, I mean, it works for this book, but it's definitely on the nose. Like it's just kind of like repent and everything will be like that's the, the solution. Um, so it is a little on the nose, but the question is whether that on the noseness, like if you were judging it by the rules of most novels, then you'd say that's that's where he breaks the rules. And that's why it feels that's why I kept bringing up or brought up Bunyan last week because it feels a little bit like he is, I mean, he's purposefully trying to be on the nose. That's why it feels like a fable or an allegory at times because you have characters. I don't mean this in a negative way. Characters preaching. Like she is preaching to him. Mm. She's like, it's a homily, what she's offering to him. Um, And you wouldn't normally get that in, in, in the, in most novels. But then at the end, I, I'm I'm trying to figure out if I agree with you about the despair at the end because the final paragraph says, okay, let's just read the last two. As it happened then, Perdelote fell asleep before either of these adversaries did. Far into the night, they held lively conversation with one another, pointing out absurdities in each other's characters and promising mighty promises, each to be fulfilled at an early date. But the sound of their brave chatter was good in Perdelote's ears. She had been successful. She slept peacefully. So we're getting into, you know, our point of view is shifting again outside of the characters. Yeah. And the book is telling us that what they were saying was brave and that she had been successful. And so at the end of the novel, it's, the book seems to be saying to me that he has overcome his pride and his despair in the end and that would be willing to along with John Wesley, go into the crack to find this, to find the dog, to see him again. So do you disagree with that, Heidi? No, I don't. I think that even as I said it, I was like, I might be overstating it a bit. Um, I don't, I, I think it could go either way. I don't know, Tim, what do you think? I think you go either way also. That was really helpful. Yeah. Oh, good. No, no. Well, the psychology is consistent, but a bit slippery, like or elusive. It's, you know, like there's, again, that's what, when you read a book, we tend to make a judgment and then rethink it. And mm-hmm. when David was mm-hmm. talking, I was like, yeah, that's a great point. Um, I think that. Because the narrator is telling us yeah. that the way that they're talking is, is she, it's, it's brave. That the things that they're saying, like two guys saying that they're going to go off to battle, we're not meant to hear it as like boasting about things that are not real, but that it, that something was right. truly changed. Coming alive yeah. again. Right. Yeah. Repentance leading to this healing. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. I don't think he's at, in despair at the end. And I think because he is she leaning, urges though. him, his, yeah, she's urging him to. That, that whole conversation between the two of them is about confession, right? And penance and repentance. And she, uh, and naming is such a big deal at this second 
in this third section and then in the afterward as well. Like he he crows over the whole he crows that that night long compline in which he names every single person who's there or every single animal who's there and that strengthens them and protects them from mutiny right so there's that po- the power of naming and seeing and identifying people um and so that's such a heroic thing to do it's such a so this is such so moving to me um and then he's another aspect of the naming was then at the end of the night he's kind of diabolically named by the laughter and he says about the the laughter he says it sees me is that right it found me or something like that um it knew him is what it says is that's what it was i'd made a note of it um that malevolent laughter after he spends all night pouring himself out naming others there's nobody to name him Mm. right and so what happens then is this malevolent laughter happens and it knew him is what the book Mm. says so he's like diabolically or invertedly i just made that word up added an ly at the end of a real word named and and so he lost himself then Hmm. Right. And that and then at the end, she essentially forces him to say out loud to name his sin, knowing he cannot be healed until he names it, until he confesses it out loud with his words. And that would make it real. And so in that before that happened, he his words were so condemning and cruel to Mundo Kani and to Pertilote. And but then when he confesses it as sin, that's what brings his healing. Right. Um, and that's true for John Wesley Weasel too. Like they have to say it before they can be healed. And so I think he ends in a place of healing and restoration, a beginning of restoration. You know, there's yeah. two more books and so more happens, but that is like, that's his healing, not his big heroic action. That's not his healing. It's repentance and rest. And that's very scriptural, right? That's Isaiah chapter 30. It says like, not in horses and battles is in your strength, but repentance and rest is your strength. Speaking of the importance of names, she says did you guys him, make- Go ahead, Tim. Well, I was going to go in a different direction. So you continue with that thought, David, and I'll pick up. No, no, it's fine. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, speaking of the importance of names, did you guys make anything out of John Wesley- the weasel. I mean, there we have a, a kind of like a classic Protestant reformer name, Wesley, the father of Methodism, Anglicanism, Episcopalianism. Um, so, and that name is plunked into the middle of this medieval book. Are we to make something out of it? I think yes, but I don't know what. Yeah, I don't like, know truly. Either. As I was like, what is. I like, kind of liked that. Yeah. I kind of have like a question mark by that. Mm-hmm. I've in my notes, there's a literal question mark. John Wesley? Question mark, mm-hmm. question mark, mm-hmm. question mark. My my number one sort of silly confusion about this book, I admit, is why do if this is before people times, why do the animals have people names? Did the That's animals invent question. the people names and then the people took them on? They also because say if so, that, that changes my worldview falling. a lot. Totally. They also said something's falling from the sky. Might have been rain or sun or something falls like bullets in this like very, you know, mm-hmm. so that there's there's a couple of anachronisms there, which seem to me probably purposefully left in because um, everything's so carefully. And in that way, it does feel constructed in the world less old and a little more postmodern. Yeah. I was saying to you before we started recording, David, that 
as, as I got to the end, I realized, man, this, in spite of, or in addition to all of the medieval aspects of this novel, elements within the novel, this is a very modern novel that explores the frailty of the human condition uh, just as much as it presents a compelling world in which to hold it, you know, to hold that frailty. Hmm. Hey, I want to ask, well, Tim, you, I'll ask this later. Tim, you were going to say something or, or did you get a chance <clears throat> no, to no, say no. what you want to say? No, I'm good. So I want to talk about the crowing. We talked a little bit about the, the calendar, like the, the hours and things like that. Is, is, do you read him as a sort of, priest i mean you said he's not meant to be like christ but is he meant to be some kind of a priestly figure well i sure took him that way given that he is crowing the the hours yeah he's he's the one that like gives order to the time and like and thus gives order to everyday life this is when we start this is when work starts this is when we cease and that role is like you know, absolutely integral to the, the health and well-being of the colony, of life. Okay, so then, given that, how are we supposed to read his his foibles? Mm. I mean, it's a book that is about the spiritual life in many ways, and yet this priest-like figure here is, you know, got shortcomings. Yeah, yeah, major. Yeah. Well, and I, I thought at first, when I first started the book, I thought that the whole coop was kind of like a, was going to be a- Like a monastery? Like an allegorical version of a monastery mm. or the church, mm. right? That he was going to be almost like a Pope figure kind of, but his actions are more consistent with a king archetype. Yeah. Not a yeah, pope, right. In my opinion, right. rather than a priest, but he does order the time and as, as Tim points out in Crow the Hours, um, and um, so, yeah, I think there's a bit of fluidity there too. But I, I, I would say I think he's more of a king than a priest. So is he but like that's a, a very is he a priest king? Role. I mean, is that like because he's you know people have talked about like the Compline and stuff, the All Might Compline and mm-hmm. things like that. Well, and he has a prophetic role too, right? Because he also can see some things that are coming and receives visions. Right, his dreams. Which is why I thought he was going to be this Christ figure uniting all of these, the prophet, priest, and king. And then it ends up being Mundo Kani, which is just such a twist. I didn't expect it. <laughs> you know, I wonder if there's kind of like a commentary, you know, that, that Chanticleer continues. I mean, he never fails, that I recall in the book, to kind of fulfill the role of keeping the hours. He does that Mm -hmm. really consistently despite his inner travails and exterior travails. And I wonder if it's kind of like, you know, moms and dads might fail in this way or in that way to be good parents. But as long as they kind of keep the hours, as long as they are, you know, providing warmth, food, education for their kids, you're like, yeah, you're still doing the fundamental things. Then it might not make you the very best parent. You know, kids need more from us than just those things. But those things are essential. 
I mean, I kind of read Chanticleer's kind of like he never failed to do those essential things, even though he did fail in some of his more like spiritual and physical struggles. Hmm. Tim, you need to go. I do. I think Susan. the reading gobbled into my time, the last, that reading, which is kind of, that was fun to do. And by the way, I was the last back to record. Do you realize what a slow reader I am? I'm such a slow reader. It's because you're such a close reader. You're well being careful. done. I said 15 and then you were like 10. As if I to know. throw down the gauntlet. So then I had to, I had to speed up and then you weren't back yet. Shay. I'm a slow, close reader. <laughs> Heidi, any final thoughts? Next week, we'll do the Q&A. We've, we've gone to the end right. of the book. So next Perfect. week, Heidi, you want to you post the thread? Yeah, I'd be happy to post the thread. So, and I really want to hear people's thoughts on this issue. Like I, now I have so many. So I, I have a thousand final thoughts. So I think that my final thought then has to be, this is a book that raises more questions than it answers and that it, it's trying to do that. It's trying to kind of upend some expectations um, and uh, conflates a negative word, but overlap, maybe a better word, overlap some literary and spiritual uh, and political archetypes and make us look at them and ask questions about them. Um, I know that there's commentary and statements within this book. There certainly are, but I'm left with more questions than answers and kind of a desire to delve in, into it more and get to the bottom of it. Tim, do you want to add anything? I, I don't want to add anything. I'm really curious to do the Q and a next week because I'm curious to know what our readers who have demonstrated such ability as readers like the ways that they're reading this book. I'm actually looking for a little instruction from the Q and a. Yes. Particularly people who, for whom this is one of their hard books. Yeah. Right. Right. There's clearly things that they see in this book that I'm not seeing. So I'm curious to read those. I'm assuming those will kind of show up through the questions. On a, David, do you have a final thought? Well, on an episode of bibliography coming soon. I was talking to with one, with one author who was talking about how the experience of between a book and a reader is a sort of mystical thing that no no writer can account for. Um, and in the afterword to this, um, Wayne Grin wrote, um, he he wrote he wrote, <laughs> meaning devolved from and must follow the reader's experience, meaning therefore springs from the relationship between the reader and the writing. Should I, the author, ever state in uncertain terms what my book means, it would cease to be a living thing. It would cease to be the novel it might have been and would rather become an illustration of some defining, delimiting concept. Sermons do that well and write properly. Novels in which themes demand an intellectual attention can only be novels in spite of these didactic interruptions. And I think that gets, end quote, I think that gets at that notion that there is a sort of mystical thing that each reader has with, with mm -hmm. books. I think we see that all For the time sure. on the show, right? Like For sure. Each of us like books that we do on this show to varying degrees. And then sometimes we'll have books that we're like so stoked to do. And the readers that collectively are just sort of like, eh. like I'm a hundred percent sure that Confederacy of Dunces, which is coming up later. I am dreading is, that book. 
going to be one of those. And oh, Heidi, really? yeah, turns out it just, hates it, really dislikes I, it. I've not read it. I've never read oh, okay. it, but I am like dreading. I think I'm going to hate it. And oh, I'm, no. so I'm hoping I won't, but if I do, I do. You know what I mean? That's just yeah. the way. Right, we are and, right. Sometimes and, we're like, I just don't like. And that. then Tim and I can fight we you can about try it. To we can try to coax me. you that's into right. affection. Yeah, awesome. Like, and our good friend Sean Johnson, for who I think that's one of their favorite books. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll do the Q and A next week. Bye, Tim. For Tim McIntosh, for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.